Welcome to Books and Beyond with your host, Alison. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. I know this girl. My Hara my Kiara, and welcome to Books and Beyond Literary Lounge with Alison and Enika, brought to you from our home studios. Kiara Enika. Kiara Alison. Well, we've both been reading up a storm from what we've been telling each other this week. Um, it's certainly that time of year when you want to be inside with a, a good book and a warm cup of something or, or a warm something beside you. <laughs> yeah. It really is. We've got such a mixed bag today, Alyssa, eh? I'm gonna We're going to get stuck straight in, aren't we? Yep. I'm going to start. So it's this week, um, or last week, I finished reading um, The Leonard Girls by Deborah Chalanoa. And that's um, Deborah Chalanoa's um, most recently published book, so published in 2022. Now, I'm sure lots of you will be no strangers to her books. She's a best-selling um, author. In fact, she's one of Aotearoa's most popular um, authors, um, and she specializes in historical fiction. Now, I'm really glad to announce that I've just read my very first Chalanoa. I was yes. going to. I was well going to say, Alison. I was ashamed. <laughs> it's taken me this long to get around to it. But you know what? I've decided that there's actually only so much time and so many books and authors. So, look, I'm declaring books and beyond a no shame zone around not having read this author or that. But yes. Oh, hooray! I hear you, and um, you've taken a load off off my mind. Oh, good. <laughs> well, I requested it fairly blind, but. Actually, turns out that the Leonard Girls, you might already know this, is the um, fourth and last book of Chelanor's Restless Years series. Now, this one is set mainly in New Zealand and Australia, and this full series follows three interconnected families through the middle of the 20th century. So those times of really big societal change um, around the world, but but definitely in Australia and New Zealand. Um, if you want to start at book one, like a normal person, you could begin <laughs> with Fire, which um, is set in 1953. Um, but I have to say, as a newbie and uh, new to this series, I thought the Lena Girls worked just fine as a standalone. So it is set in 1969 in Auckland and Vietnam, and it stars two sisters. We've got Rowie, who's the eldest. Now, she's a young nurse, and she's um, really uh, looking forward to heading out on her first tour of duty, treating wounded Anzacs in field hospitals. Now, her younger sister, Jo, is a politics student, so you might be surprised necessarily to hear that she's an anti-war protester, and she's also a folk singer. Now, she, um, Jo begins to question all her black and white views around the war um, after she's reintroduced to a distant cousin of theirs and a soldier called Sam Apanui. Now, Sam's back home between tours, so he's already been on tour, he's going back shortly. Um, but, and although Joe's quite loath to admit it, he's, his thoughts on, you know, what the reasons for being at war and what it means to him start to shift your perspective a little bit. And let's be frank, he does look quite dishy in his car keys, Alison. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so there's this mild enemies to lovers vibe going on there, but to be honest, it really doesn't take very much for Joe to be um, seemingly won over. Um, Sam's a really charming, stand-up sort of a guy. He cares deeply for his whānau and his friends, and he's a real thoughtful leader in his unit. 
And did I mention he looks good in uniform? <laughs> I love a thing in uniform. Oh, I know. I'm going to see Tom yeah. Maverick tonight. <laughs> when Joe's offered the chance to sing um, with Dark Horse, who are a Māori rock band who are going to be touring the Kiwi and Aussie bases in Vietnam for a month or so, and this is in the middle of the term, she actually decides to chuck the books and, um, and grab the opportunity to reconnect with both her sister and soldier Sam. Now, there's some really cool scenes um, where the band is rehearsing together and kind of getting their groove on. And they also have a quick stopover in Sydney. And um, they have some costumes custom made by this talented pair of seamstress Mm -hmm. drag queens. And apparently they feature in um, the earlier one in the series called The Jacaranda House. So I'll definitely be jumping back in to hear their story. Now, the rest of this book, The Lena Girls, is set deep in the heat, dust and mud of Vietnam. Now, Rowie, the nurse, her initial fervour is sort of quickly dispelled. She has these relentless waves of helicopters delivering horrifically injured soldiers. And on an, um, one of her leave breaks, she visits an orphanage, which is filled with abandoned babies who've been left by, you know, v- uh, GI um, fathers and um, children with disabilities caused by what they don't realise, but of course it's caused by Agent Orange drops. She's a fully changed woman when Joe gets to meet her again, so this is a bit of a shock to the system for Joe. Um, and she also notices that Sam is is you know, his attitude to the war is changing as well. As he gets closer to risk and danger and it becomes personal for him. I'm not going to tell you how. Um, now, I found this book to be refreshing and nuanced um, historical fiction read. I loved um, reading some really, you know, not very recent New Zealand history. Mm. Um, it has a bit of everything. Um, I don't know if this is typical of Deborah Chalinor, but I wouldn't be surprised. It's got history, drama, family, romance, tears, and a little bit of humour too. There's heavy subjects in this book, but they're handled with just the right amount of gravitas without weighing down the, the general thread of the story. And, um, and Deborah Chalinor is an expert at creating these subtle connections in the book between the older generations who you meet. They've already been dealing with war, injury and hardship for, for many years. And you're also getting this parallel with the young ones experiencing those for the first time, really. Um, first hand, I should say. So she's definitely piqued my interest to, to go and check out those earlier books in the series. Um, I would say you should jump in the queue. There are, it's a bit of a queue on it, but there's actually heaps of copies. So you should get one fairly soon, hopefully. Yeah, look, she's a really, really good writer. Um, now, Deborah started her writing career with two non-fiction books about New Zealand soldiers and the veterans who fought in Vietnam. Mm. Um, the first one was Grey Ghosts, and then it was followed by Hill Stop the Rain. Right. Now, um, Deborah has a personal connection to all of this Vietnam material because her father was a soldier um, and was was sent to to Vietnam mm. in those those really difficult years so um, um, even though um, yeah so we can be really sure that even though this is historical fiction um, there's a lot of fact based on a lot of fact her, she's a meticulous researcher mm. um, and she does include lots of true stories and, and really interesting facts in the mix. Yes, she did. Yeah, so that first one, uh, her non-fiction Grey Ghost, was based on her university 
uh, doctoral research about New Zealand soldiers in the Vietnam War. And then Who'll Stop the Rain was a book about the effects of Agent Orange on the children of New Zealand's Vietnam veterans. So the assumption I've made rightly or wrongly, is that her father was exposed to Agent Orange while he was doing his military service. Oh, very and, interesting. Um, yeah, and I'm just assuming that the whole experience had, had a big effect on her family. Right. But in the back of the book, there's some really good notes. So there's an epilogue which kind of wraps up the series, the full series, and there's an epilogue, uh, sorry, there's um, a lot of author's notes um, talking about going into great detail about um, her um, her experience of researching it and um, and lots of different historical tidbits that I found were really fascinating and really added to the story, um, oh, to my understanding of the story. So that was great. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, no, she's a great researcher. Well, look, um, I've been reading something by another New Zealand author, um, sort of slightly different material, but um, also going back um, a few decades, and this one's called Polaroid Nights, and it's by Lizzie Harwood, and it um, was published last year. And you were telling me earlier that you've read it too. Yeah, I finished it this week, so I'm really looking forward to hearing what you've got to say about it. We can have a chat about that at the end. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's right. No, it's just coincidence that we both started reading it at the same time. (laughs) So now Polaroid Nights, I would say it's a growing, um, it's part of this growing body of work um, that I would call... Auckland Noir. There's probably a better name for it, but um, and this is a subset of that broader Year Noir uh, genre of books. So um, we should have a, a, a competition to come up for a better name for, these, <laughs> for this subgenre. And um, it's the author Lizzie Howard's debut novel, and she won the inaugural New Zealand Society of Authors Laura Solomon Cuba Press Prize with this book. Mm. So now it's um, it's quite a chilling story. It's a it's a romp around K Road in the inner city in the mid nineteen nineties, and most of the action takes place after dark. Um, and this action, this drama, follows a small group of hospital workers who are all crying like hell to pay the rent and and live their best life Mm. and to not kill the the landlord's cat (laughs) through neglect or or otherwise. (laughs) So, um, yeah, our main character, Betty, Betty Ashfold, interesting name, um, now her life is on repeat. So it's um, life goes like this, waitress till late, drink till dawn and in bed to forget. Mm. (laughs) But partying like there's no tomorrow is no fix for the problems that are crowding in. Her ex is back and um, drinking at all Betty's favourite haunts. Her her flat has been burgled and she faces eviction if she can't pay her overdue rent. And then, chillingly, there's this serial rapist called the psychic who's terrorising women in their homes. So when Betty's ex is murdered and, and left in her bed, Betty and her flatmate Alabama turned to the bar world to find out who did it. Was it the psychic or was it actually someone closer to them? Now, the story is loosely based on fact. Um, there was a serial rapist in the, the 90s who did actually exist and he terrorised Auckland women for, for years. Um, so now, for this reason, I, I would include a trigger warning for readers. But 
I found that the violence was mostly implied rather than, than graphic. Mm. Um, the book, though, definitely was a spew fest, um, <laughs> all those late night cocktails. Um, so I would say don't read it if you're feeling queasy, because some of that was a bit technicolor, wasn't it? <laughs> a bit much, yeah. It did yeah. take me back, though. <laughs> oh, I know. And that asphalt, yeah, um, for some reason, falling out of taxis. Oh, it's a terrible, <laughs> terrible thing. So now, um, so Polaroid Night, it, it really fizzes with that wild energy of, of the city of Auckland in the 1990s. Um, many readers, including myself, will recognise the bars and restaurants where a lot of the action of the book takes place. And I must, I'm sure I recognise that friendly taxi driver who's always getting the girls out of trouble in, uh, new, you know, in different forms of harm. Um, so now there's some aspects of the story that I feel leave the reader with more questions than answers. Mm. But I reckon that the author would have been deliberate in this. You know, there were some loose ends that initially I, I wanted to be tidied up. But then I, when I was thinking about it further, I I was sort of asking myself, does a good story have to weave everything into a, a tight basket or is it okay to, to leave a few loose strands here and there, which is a horrible metaphor, I know. But look, this was a compulsive read. It was pitch perfect, wickedly humorous. Um, and the dark hinterland of Auckland and K Road, etc. And it, it was fascinating. And uh, yeah, I loved it. <laughs> yeah, great. Well, I read that um, the manuscript for Polaroid uh, Nights was actually written about. 23, 24 years ago. Ah. So when it was initially written, it was obviously a lot closer to 1996 um, than we are now. And of course, that, that really helped to explain to me why the 90s Auckland reference was, was so on point. Mm. Um, Lizzie Howard apparently reworked the script, uh, the manuscript, many times over the years. She's been to Paris, been living in Paris with her family and come back to Auckland just recently. She pulled it out of a drawer at the last minute for this competition and then she, she ended up winning the prize. And the ch- prize was the chance to get it published. So, you know, it's never too late, people. Yeah. <laughs> Good message there. Absolutely. Now, it might have been the names of the main characters. Um, we had Betty, Alabama, Faith, and Truman. <laughs> it, it, these, it did take my mind to the American South for some reason, even though we were sitting squarely in K Road and Vulcan <laughs> Lane and places like that. But um, it did kind of remind me a bit of um, Charlene Harris's Sookie Stackhouse series, um, which, of course, got made into the True Blood series on television. Yeah, it had you know there was some buckets of blood, there was some blunt instrument trauma, uh, random after midnight scheming that goes a bit horribly wrong, and there was some really good singers in it, wasn't there? I just um, wrote yes. down this one. Um, after blowing a regrettably large amount of money on vodka forty twos, she was now sitting with one hundred and eighty dollars, and it was Saturday midnight. There were theories to unpack and circles of sickos to map out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I just loved that, um, the writing. Yeah. They were great, weren't they? And um, I reckon, I'm sure that this book is absolutely ripe for a sequel. Um, and I must admit, I didn't, my mind didn't go to Charlene Harris, the Suki Stackhouse mm-hmm. series with this. I went in a different direction. But for the sequel, I could just imagine the girls opening their own bar and restaurant in K Road. You know, maybe a drag bar like Kaluzzi's or something like that. Actually, they did have that, dra- it had a bit of a drag vibe, didn't it? It really did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It and was, 
highly paid and very enjoyable. Yes. And, um, yeah, there was something just kind of glamorous and trashy all all in one. Yeah. (laughs) But um, bring on the sequel. We loved it. And that one was um, Polaroid Nights by Lizzie Howard. That's right. Highly recommended. Well, now, um, moving on um, to a more beautiful part of the world, but not necessarily a more peaceful part, um, I've just been reading um, a book. It's kind of like vacation thriller, and it's called The Guide by the um, American author Peter Heller, and it was published in 2021. Now, this one, The Guide, it's actually, what I didn't realise, it's actually a sequel as well to a book called The River, which came out in 2019. However, this book, um, The Guide, works absolutely fine as a standalone book. And I love these ones that do that. Yeah, I do too. You know, so you don't have to get too into whether, you know, what number am I reading. Uh, now, I read this book um, in hard copy, um, and I'm not ashamed at all, because this is a no-shame zone. Love that. Um, not ashamed to admit that I was initially attracted to it by its cover. So it's got a really lovely, shiny sort of cover. And under the um, title, there's some subtext that says, uh, so it goes, the guide, and then it says, your dream holiday awaits. Mm. And um, a dream holiday certainly sounds nice in these COVID times. (laughs) But then I was hooked by an endorsement from another author that says, Peter Heller is, and I quote, the poet laureate of the literary thriller and I thought oh what more could I want I really want to read this (laughs) so um you know and then the the thought of beautiful scenery at an idyllic retreat in the mountains of Colorado where people come from all over the world and have a holiday of a lifetime throw in a bit of drama and mystery and all written by an absolute master of the genre was it too good to be true and um for me I Disappointingly, I do have to say yes. Oh, but, um, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, I still read it. Yeah. So, <laughs> so anyway, the guide, um, it's set in the, the very near future, um, in which, um, a coronavirus variants have, have pushed America's leisure class westward. So all those rich New Yorkers, um, it's pushed them out west to beautiful states like Colorado in search of open space lots of fresh air and, and outdoor recreation. And now our main character, Jack, has been hired as a seasonal river guide at the gorgeous and expensive Kingfisher Lodge. Now, Jack is battling demons after a recent devastating loss, and he leads fly fishing expeditions for, for well-heeled clients, such as Alison, who happens to be a famous country singer who is travelling incognito, as you do when you when you're a famous singer. Um, I learned a lot about fly fishing by reading this. It, it oh, sounds nice. very peaceful. So anyway, as Jack and Alison, as their outings on the river grow more kind of romantic and intimate, they encounter mounting evidence. Um, for example, trigger-happy security guards, staff members gone AWOL, and, and an emaciated young woman fleeing the property in a hospital gown. Ooh. All of this evidence suggests that something very sinister is going on at this beautiful place. But um, 
Look, as a piece of literature, I think the guide's doomed really by a kind of a flat dialogue and probably implausible plot elements, you'd have to say. Mm. But um, it's the perspective really that that takes the teeth out of the out of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what I found was that the um, the narrator, who you're not really sure who the narrator is. Um, the narrator seems to know what's going on long before Jack and Alison do. Uh-huh. And so this sort of leaves the couple stumbling through really obvious twists and, and reveals. And even I was sort of... I could kind of work out what, what they were going to discover before they did. Oh, right. Um, so... Yeah, and um, Jack, for example, I keep thinking Jack Reacher, but he's, on one hand, he's an Ivy League kind of golden boy, but then he's, they make him out to be a bit of a um, monosyllabic sort of blue-collar guy. Um, then he's shell-shock survivor. Then he's a vigilante. Oh. You know, he's got That's mood right. swings. Yeah, he doesn't have a lot of insight into his behaviour, but he is gorgeous and he looks amazing in his waders and his khaki um, uniform. And then um, Alison, the, the country music singer she's sort of almost saintly um and she's got impeccable morals so there's certain places with jack that she won't go and and she's beautifully generous and everything so look it's it was a bit of a dopey summer blockbuster book but Mm -hmm. i actually enjoyed it um um, i wasn't expecting you to say that yeah Um, you know, it's a, it's a vacay thriller, but there's a sense that the writer Peter Heller is actually saying that the real villains we see here are, are our mining industries, our insatiable consumer culture that are, are on track to destroy these sort of um, beautiful Western vistas. Um, the scenery is gorgeous. The, the people are good looking. The book's a page turner. You know, it reminded me quite a bit of that book series Virgin River by Robin Carr, which has been very right. popular and was turned into the Netflix series uh, called Virgin River, um, starring Martin Henderson, the Kiwi. Ooh. But look, it's great weekend read, great bit of escapism. Go for it in a car. Oh, well, we yeah. do have a, week, a holiday weekend coming up, Alison. Yeah. Could be just a ticket, right? Could be good for that. <laughs> well, my next read, um, so that one was called, let me just have a check here, The Guide by Peter Heller. The Guide, Heller. yeah, Peter Heller. Lovely. Well, my next read, I actually read it a little while ago, so it's not that fresh in my memory, but bear with me. I'm, I'm sure I'll get there. <laughs> it was called How to Find Your Way Home by Katie Regan. Uh, it's a 2022 book, and it's available in an adult, adult fiction collection. So this is a novel, and it's mostly set in London in 2018. So Emily is our main character, and she's in her early 30s. She works in a council ho- housing office, um, and she and her clients really are both being slowly ground down by a story that's quite familiar, familiar I'm sure, to Auckland, uh, Aucklanders, um, by a shortage of suitable housing stock and particularly to England, um, there's these very harsh austerity measures which are hampering the social welfare system from doing what it's meant to. Um, and really, it's really becoming very clear that there's, there's something a bit rotten about what's yeah. happening. 
in that space. But Emily um, wants to stay in the job and her she's got an sort of ulterior motive for staying with it. Her elder brother, Stephen, is himself homeless and she hasn't seen or heard from him in 15 years. Now, her hope, her endless hope, and this is why she she comes in early and start, stays late, is that he is going to walk into her office one day and she'll be able to take him home with her. And of course, in this book, that day comes and he does walk into the office. Now, Emily is initially just so thrilled to have Stephen back in her life. She welcomes him, her into her lovely home. She wants to make up for lost time, and she's so relishing um, the chance to nurture him back into, you know, a normal life, in, um, in air quotes, and back mm. as well into the arms of their family. But some aspects of the past are really hard to be able to deal with in a hurry. It's just not going to happen. There's lots of historical hurt and complicated feelings around how he actually became homeless. So a bit more on that later. Mm. Now, the feelings between the two are mutual initially. Stephen's so happy to have Emily's support at the beginning, but very soon he feels quite hemmed in um, by this sort of like padded cell he starts to feel. Um, he is now mostly sober after years of drug and al- alcohol use, but he's a very vulnerable person um, and he's really not used to being cared for by someone who loves him. He starts feeling really frustrated and defensive um, as what he sees is Emily trying to fix him and mend their sort of broken family dynamic in one fell swoop. Um, she's throwing love, cash. She's got all her professional connections and knowledge of the, you know, the social welfare system. But there's also a bit of secrecy and scamming behind the scenes, which is well-intentioned, but it, it is happening behind the scenes and he can kind of sense that there's something not quite right. Now, the book jumps from the present um, and the past it goes from Sue to first person and you hear from Emily's perspective and you then see Stephen's rugged path to, to where they meet, a re-meet I should say. Now the two of them grew up with their family living um, on the edges of the marshlands of Canvey Island on the edge of um, East London and we find out that Stephen was a, always a, quite a sensitive child, very high energy, um, he had a passion for bird watching, loved his little sister and Emily absolutely hero worshipped him for their childhood. Now, Emily is eight years younger, so as a child, she's quite sweet and she's really quite oblivious to what the wider goings-on are in the, in the household. There's this really slow reveal over the course of the book where their separate experiences and understandings of what actually happened in their childhood are teased out. There's um, a parents' divorce, um, their mother has a new relationship, um, and there's an accident that leaves their stepdad in a wheelchair. Now, I don't want to give away too much of the plot but this was a really good mixture of heartwarming domestic drama it's got that social and societal issues part and it's also got a bit of mystery thrown in too now that slow reveal of the mystery or the the revealing of the mystery um, was a bit too slow for me I must admit Um, but the reconnection and that rebuilding of the relationship between this estranged sister and brother was really absorbing and it was handled in this quite fresh and non-saccharine way you know it wasn't um they didn't gloss over um, the issues that were built, built up by that. And that really kept me on the hook to the end. So that one was um, How to Find Your Way Home by Katie Regan, published in 2022. Go for it.
Sounds wonderful, actually, and very sort of topical. A um, lot of things to relate to. Well, look, I think I've got a bit of time to um, come back to New Zealand with the reading. I've been reading um, this brand new book of amazing poetry called In INA Now by Dr. Vaughan Rapatahana, and it's only just published. Now, and this is um, Vaughan's eighth collection of poetry. Um, he is uh, from Te Atiawa, and he divides his time between Aotearoa, Hong Kong and the Philippines. He writes in Te Reo Māori and English and he's won heaps of awards for his poetry. He also writes prose and a lot of academic works. He's really something. Now, um, a lot of this new collection of poems is, is written in Te Reo Māori and it's translated into English by Rapatan himself. Mm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, in this technique of being the, the person who writes both languages means that you don't get the issues of interpretation that so often come up when stories and, and poems are translated. I mean, our history in New Zealand shows us how problematic it is when one person writes something in one language and another translates it into another. Uh, Treaty of Waitangi, anyone? <laughs> you know, because that's a big problem, isn't that's it? a big one. So um, Vaughan really clearly articulates in both languages exactly what he wants to say. And um, hey, I tell you what, this is these poems pack quite a punch. They're challenging, they're thought-provoking, they're emotional. And he's not afraid of, of expressing his feelings of joy, love, grief, despair and anger. Um, he tackles the big issues that confront us as a society at the moment. COVID, suicide rates among Māori men, racism, climate change and the history and the tragedy of this place we call home. He's playful at times too so there's a lot of hope and his message to readers is um, remember who you are and where you come from. Um, there's much more I could say but we're running out of time so to our readers remember who you are and, and where you come from. Happy reading. We will see you next time. So take care and be kind to yourselves. Hi Rara. Ka kite ano. This program was brought to you by Auckland Libraries. Find us online at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and catch the program next Sunday at 9.35pm on 104.6 FM or anytime online at planetaudio.org.nz slash books and beyond. Every day, every day, every day.